Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 39. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We come now to the second major fact supporting the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, and it is the post-mortem appearances of Jesus to various individuals and groups. We've already examined six lines of evidence in support of the historicity of the discovery of the empty tomb, and now we want to look at several lines of evidence in support of the historicity of these post-mortem appearances. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 8, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Namely, and then he begins to quote this tradition, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Finally, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." Now this is a truly remarkable claim. It's familiarity prevents us from realizing how astonishing this really is. We have here an indisputably authentic letter. No one disputes that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. An indisputably authentic letter from a man who was personally acquainted with the original 12 disciples, and he reports that they actually saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. More than that, he says that he himself also saw such an appearance of Jesus. So what are we to make of this remarkable claim? Well, once again, time won't permit us to examine in detail all of the evidence in support of Jesus' postmortem appearances, but I would like to examine with you three basic lines of evidence. The first line of evidence is that Paul's list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances guarantees that such appearances occurred. Paul's list of eyewitnesses to these postmortem appearances guarantees that such appearances occurred. In 1 Corinthians 15, we've seen that Paul gives a list of witnesses to various post-mortem appearances of Jesus. Let's look briefly at each appearance in the list to see whether it's credible that such an event actually took place. First, then, is the appearance to Peter, or Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter that Paul uses here. As we've seen in our biblical survey, we don't have any story in the Gospels of Jesus' appearance to Peter. But the appearance is mentioned here in this old 
Christian tradition that Paul quotes and that goes back to within five years after Jesus' crucifixion, uh, originating in the Jerusalem church where Peter flourished, and moreover, this tradition is vouched for by Paul himself personally, who knew Peter. As we know from Galatians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul spent about two weeks with Peter in Jerusalem three years after his conversion on the Damascus Road. Galatians 1.18 says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now here Paul says that he spent two weeks, 15 days, with Peter in Jerusalem, um, and therefore he would know whether or not Peter claimed to have experienced a resurrection appearance of Jesus or not. Now in addition to this, the appearance to Peter is also alluded to in another very old Christian tradition, which is found in Luke 24 and verse 34. Luke 24, 34, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That Luke is working with a prior tradition here, I think, is evident by the awkward way in which this saying intrudes into the narrative of the appearance to the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Luke evidently didn't have a story to go with it uh, of the appearance to Peter, but he knew of this uh, appearance and inserts it into his Emmaus Road narrative in this rather awkward fashion. So although we don't have any detailed story of the appearance to Peter, Nevertheless, it is quite well founded historically. It is mentioned in the very ancient formula passed on by Paul. It's vouched for by Paul himself, who had personal contact with Peter, and it is referred to in the old tradition quoted in Luke 24, 34. And so as a result, even the most skeptical New Testament scholars agree that Peter did experience a post-mortem appearance of Jesus. Now you can try to explain this psychologically as a hallucination or a visionary experience or whatever, but you can't deny uh, responsibly that it occurred. Virtually everyone agrees that P uh, Peter did have such a post-mortem uh, appearance of Jesus. Secondly is the appearance to the Twelve. Now undoubtedly the reference here in Paul's formula is to that group of original disciples who had been chosen by Jesus to accompany him during his lifetime and that was known as the Twelve. Now of course the appearance would have been an appearance to this group minus Judas who had apostatized by that time. But nevertheless, the official title of the group remained unchanged. It was The Twelve. And this is the best attested resurrection appearance of Jesus. It too is included in this very old formula that is quoted by Paul as the second appearance in the list. And moreover, Paul himself 
had personal contact with members of the group of the Twelve. Moreover, we've seen that we have independent stories of this appearance in Luke 24, verses 36 to 42, and John 20, verses 19 and 20. Luke 24, 36 to 42, and John 20, verses 19 to 20. We won't read them since we've already read those accounts when we did our biblical survey uh, concerning the resurrection materials. But let me comment on what is undoubtedly the most notable feature of these two resurrection appearance stories, namely the physical demonstrations of Jesus showing his wounds to the disciples and then eating food in front of them. The purpose of these physical demonstrations is to show two things. First, that Jesus was raised physically. This wasn't some sort of an apparition or a, a, a vision. This was a material body that appeared before them. And secondly, it demonstrates that it was the same Jesus who had been crucified who now appeared before them. He bore in his hands and side the wounds which he had suffered on the cross. And so these physical demonstrations serve to demonstrate two things about the nature of these resurrection appearances. First, their corporeality, and secondly, their continuity with the historical earthly Jesus. They demonstrate both corporeality and continuity of uh, the resurrection body of Christ. And I think there's little doubt that such an appearance actually took place. It's attested in the old Christian tradition handed on by Paul. It's vouched for by Paul himself, who had personal contact with the Twelve. It is uh, also independently narrated in both Luke and in John. Thirdly is the appearance to the 500 brethren. Now this appearance comes, I think, as something of a shock. Paul says, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now this is surprising because we have no story anywhere in the New Testament of such a stupendous resurrection appearance of Jesus. And this, I think, might make you skeptical about the historicity of this appearance. Perhaps it's a, a, a legend or, or something of that sort that never really took place. But notice that Paul himself apparently had personal contact with these people because he knew that some of them had died in the interim between the appearance and the time of Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And this is seen in his parenthetical comment, which he inserts, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why does Paul insert this parenthetical remark? Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Well, the great uh, New Testament scholar of Cambridge University, C.H. Dodd, has commented in this regard, 
There can hardly be any purpose in mentioning the fact that most of the 500 are still alive unless Paul is saying, in effect, the witnesses are there to be questioned. Now notice, Paul could never have said this if the event had not occurred. He could not have challenged people to ask the witnesses if the event had never taken place and there were no witnesses. But evidently there were witnesses to this event which were about and Paul knew that some of them had died in the meantime. And therefore this event must have taken place. Now I think that the reason that the appearance is not narrated in the Gospels is because it probably took place in Galilee. As you put together the various appearance stories in the Gospels, you find that the appearances occurred first in Jerusalem, and then in Galilee, and then finally in Jerusalem again. And the appearance to 500 people at one time would have to be out of doors. It would have to be an outdoor appearance, perhaps on a hillside near a Galilean village. Remember, it was in Galilee that thousands of people had flocked to hear Jesus teach during his ministry. And since the Gospels focus their attention on the Jerusalem appearances, we don't have a story of the appearance to the 500 because it probably occurred during that period in Galilee. An intriguing possibility is that this was the appearance that is predicted by the angel in the pre-Mark and Passion story where the angel says to the women, go to Galilee, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him. And then this appearance is described in Matthew 28 verses 16 and 17, Matthew 28, 16 and 17 as a, an appearance on a mountaintop in Galilee. Now we don't know if this was the same as the appearance to the 500 brethren, but it is certainly possible that this is the appearance that Paul is talking about. Fourthly, the appearance to James. This appearance is one of the most amazing of all. Jesus appeared to James, his younger brother. Now what makes this amazing is that apparently neither James nor indeed any of Jesus' younger brothers believed in Jesus during his lifetime. We have this independently attested in Mark chapter 3 verses 21, 31 to 35. Mark chapter 3 verses 21 and 31 to 35 and then John 7 verses 1 to 10. John 7, 1 to 10. Let's read Mark's account first. Mark 3 and verse uh, 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For people were saying, he is beside himself. And then verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting about him, and they said of him, to him, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking around at those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Here, the family of Jesus is portrayed as thinking that he was literally out of his mind. He was mad. And so they went to try to corral him and and perhaps bring him home. And in John 7, verses 1 to 10, we have a similar uh, story. John 7, 1 to 10. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no man works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Go to the feast yourselves, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So saying, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now in this quite vicious story, Jesus' brothers are portrayed as trying to goad Jesus into a death trap. They knew that the Jews in Judea were seeking to arrest Jesus and and kill him. And so they encourage him to go up to the feast in Jerusalem and show himself publicly for everyone to see uh, that he was who he claimed to be. Uh, And John adds the remark, his brothers didn't believe in him. They were doing something here that was extremely sinister. Um, Now, by the criterion of uh, embarrassment, I think this is undoubtedly a historical facet of Jesus' life and ministry. Had his family members been faithful followers of Jesus all along, there's no reason that the early Christian church would have invented such vicious stories about the unbelief of Jesus' family members. So it's historically certain, I think, that during his lifetime, none of Jesus' brothers believed that he was anybody special. But then, following the resurrection, all of a sudden, Jesus' um, mother and brothers begin to show up in the Christian fellowship. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. All these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Where did they come from? All of a sudden, here in the upper room, as the Christians are huddled together, his mother and his brothers are there uh, in the upper room with them. Now, there's no further mention of them until you get to Acts chapter 12. But turn over to Acts 12 and verse 17. Acts 12, 17. This is the story of Peter's deliverance from prison by the um, angel. And what are the first words of Peter 
when he is released. Verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell this to James and to the brethren. So here James is a significant uh, leader in the New Testament church. Peter says, tell this to James, he needs to be notified. In Galatians 1 and verse 19, we've seen that when Paul went up to Jerusalem three years after his conversion on the Damascus Road, he met with both Peter and none of the other apostles except, he says, James the Lord's brother. In verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. Now, clearly, Paul at least implies here that James was being reckoned as an apostle now. He was being placed along with Peter and the other apostles as an apostle of Christ. When Paul visited Jerusalem again 14 years later, he says in Galatians 2.9 that there were three pillars of the church at that time, Peter, John, and James. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So now James has emerged to being one of the three pillars of the Jerusalem church. Finally, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 18, James has become the sole head of the Jerusalem church. James 21 and verse 18. This is the story of the Jerusalem uh, council. And it says in, James, uh, in uh, Acts 21, 18, the following day, Peter went with us or Paul went in with us, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So it is James that is the head of the Jerusalem council and the church in Jerusalem. Now we don't hear anything more about James in the pages of the New Testament, but from Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian in his Antiquities of the Jews, uh, 20 point 200, he says that James was stoned to death illegally by the Sanhedrin sometime after AD 60 during a lapse in the civil government. They took advantage of this lapse in the civil government to seize James and the Sanhedrin stoned him to death. Now not only did James become a believer in Jesus, but so did Jesus' other brothers. We can see this from Paul's comment in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5. He says, do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So here Paul claims for himself and for Barnabas the right to be accompanied on their journeys by a wife, just like the other apostles, Cephas, and the brothers of the Lord Jesus. Now, how do you explain this? 
On the one hand, it's very clear that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus during his lifetime. On the other hand, it's equally certain that they became ardent Christians who were active in Christian missionary activity. Now, Jesus' crucifixion wouldn't make this change occur. Jesus' crucifixion would only confirm in James's mind that his elder brother was deluded in thinking that he was uh, the Messiah. Uh, and so there's got to be more than the crucifixion. Now, many of us have brothers. What would it take to convince you that your brother is the Lord so that you would be ready to be stoned to death for this belief? Can there be any doubt that the reason for this remarkable transformation in James is, as Paul says, the fact that then he appeared to James? Even the skeptical New Testament critic Hans Grass has said that the appearance of Jesus to James is one of the surest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, we still have the appearance to all the apostles and to Saul of Tarsus to discuss, but we're out of time, so we will defer that until our next lesson together. Let's conclude then with a word of prayer. Father, our hearts are so encouraged as we see the reliability of the deposit of tradition that has been handed down to us from these earliest witnesses, like the Apostle Paul. Uh, and we thank you for the confidence this gives us and the secure hope that we have of resurrection life beyond the grave. Help us to live this week in light of these truths. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.